Holmes? Anything to give? Holmes? Look on us. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Imagine living your whole life, 40 years, defined by what you couldn't do. And suddenly, everything changes in the name of Jesus. And now you'll be able to go where you can't go. He'll be able to enter the temple proper for the first time in his life. He is excited. Lights, please. Welcome to our series as we're journeying through the book of Acts, discovering how Jesus' ministry is continuing through his people. Today's story takes place in the temple, which is a large uh, place in Israel now covered with uh, two mosques, the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque of Omar, I think it's called. But at this time, this was Herod's temple, had an outer court, which was where uh, the Gentiles could gather, the court of the Gentiles, And then the temple proper, which had two courts in it, the court of women and the court of men who were a little closer to the action. And then the holy of holies where the priests ministered, the holy place where the priests ministered, then the holy of holies where the priests could go once a year to minister before the Ark of the Covenant. At this time, the Ark was gone. So a crowd gathers, excited. They all knew who this guy was. This guy sat begging at the prime location where every worshiper Every festival attender from across the Roman Empire that would come to Jerusalem would pass by his spot. Jesus, no doubt, had passed by him. So when he was healed, they knew it wasn't some hoax. They knew it wasn't some street person that that Peter paid to pretend he was crippled so that they could pull off a fake miracle stunt and get a crowd. This was a stunning, notable miracle. And Peter doesn't miss out on the opportunity to preach the gospel to his audience. He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Interesting, the murderer was named Barabbas whose name means son of Abba. not interesting? He died in place of a, of a killer. Jesus, the giver of life, died in the place of a taker of life. 
What a picture. What a paradox. What a demonstration of the mercy of God. He died in our place. The worst parts of us. He died for those parts. He died for all of us. Verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He declared this man was healed in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. You know, through the offering that the Lord made for us on the cross, we now have a relationship with God. And through that, we have times of refreshing that we get to experience. Some of us were refreshed here today. Who's ever been refreshed while praising and worshiping the Lord? This is awesome. We're able to experience His presence because of what Jesus did. We approach the Father in Jesus' name. And this is available to all who will repent and be converted. And this Jesus, verse 21, is the one whom heaven must receive until, until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. You can find this in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, the rest of the, what we call the Old Testament, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You, pointing to his audience, are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, send him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. For some reason, the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, hated belief in the resurrection. Now, why would you fool with religion if there is no afterlife? But people do that in our day. They don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If two men come up to them and want to get married, they'll do it. If a man wants to use a women's restroom, they'll let him. But God forbid that you should do the wrong color scarf on the communion table at the wrong time of the year. How dare you? Majoring on minors and minoring on majors, religion is a business to make money for people who aren't even believers. And this was the case, exploiting the faith of the Jewish people. And they were upset that here they have an empty tomb to deal with, a missing body to explain away. People you torture who won't recant their resurrection story, they'll soon learn that. And here a miracle that cannot be denied. When is this going to stop? 
Verse 3, they laid hands on them, put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they kept them overnight in jail. However, many of those who heard the word believed. You know, our job is to declare the truth, preach the gospel, tell the word. It's God's job to make believers, right? So many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So the church grew from several hundred to 3,000 on the first day. And here, weeks later, 5,000 people. Acts chapter 2 begins with, uh, ends with a description of church life. And this is a picture of one of the days in the life of the church. They went to the temple every day and house to house, praying, praising God, teaching, eating together, having fellowship. And on one such day, this glorious miracle happened. And Peter preaches this amazing message. I want to focus on the last verse of chapter 3. Peter tells his audience, To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, send him to bless you. Can we say bless? Can we say first? What is this blessing? in turning every one of you from your iniquities. We're commanded to repent, to turn from our sin, but we can't do it without God's help, right? So God blesses us by turning our hearts toward him. None of us would have sense enough to get in out of the rain if we didn't have some help from heaven, amen? Amen. So God helps turn our hearts. So Peter preached the message, and now the number of 5,000 people came about through God, turning, blessing them first by turning their hearts towards him. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, the protocol of the gospel. The protocol of the gospel. Can we say protocol? This is the right order. This is the right structure. God does things all different kind of ways, but this is the normal pattern that we see in the book of Acts, and I believe it it is to have an impact on how we do church even in our day. God started, Jesus started the church the way he wanted it, and I believe he wants it the way he started it. He started the way he wanted, and he wants the way he started. First point of the sermon is Jesus was sent because God loved us all. It starts with God. Yeah, you may have found the Lord, but the Lord opened your eyes so you could find him, right? Like a grown-up playing hide-and-go-seek with a little kid that'll never find him without a little help. That's us finding the Lord. Jesus was sent because God loved us all. Jesus himself said this in John 3, 16, for God so loved, can we say loved? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can we say everyone and anyone? He so loved the world, everyone, that whoever, anyone, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn. The world was already condemned by their rebellion against God. The planet in which we live is already condemned. You do not have to carry a sign condemning people for their sinful lifestyles. 
God hates you. That doesn't have to happen. John 3.16 is totally opposite of that. He so loved that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this believing is not mental assent. This believing is putting your faith in. But what you believe in determines how you live. You may say you believe in the laws of the state of Texas, but if you peel out of here and drive the wrong way down the highway, 120 miles an hour, I would doubt that you really believe in the laws of the state of Texas. Now, there's a lot of people at home today sipping suds saying, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in his people. I believe in Jesus. Him and I got our own thing going. That's idolatry. That's not real Jesus, and that's not real believing. Jesus told us to love everybody. He told us, if someone despitefully uses you, serve them. They take your coat, give them your cloak. They slap you on one cheek, give them the other. Speak well of those. Bless those who curse you. This is the love of God that we are to demonstrate in the world. So if I believe in him, then I'm going to want to be loving like him. Help me, Jesus, because I don't succeed at that every single day of my life. Sometimes I have to get out of bed and actually go into the real world. This is the good news. Another protocol of the gospel, disciples were to be made now around the world. Deuteronomy 28, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I, can we say, Jesus, have commanded you. Now, if you read the Gospels, the best I can tell, he gave about 70 commands, some of them more than once, numerous times. If he said it, it is important. God's word made flesh did not come to earth and speak meaningless platitudes. And his words deal with our hearts more than our behavior. Deal with our hearts. You change your heart, the behavior will follow, right? Because he rules our lives from the inside out, not from rules on the wall, but from the rules in the heart. Don't murder, he says, don't hate. Don't fornicate, he says, don't lust. Because sin starts in the mind, doesn't it? Or you kill somebody, first of all, there's a thought, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> and then comes the behavior. His gospel was to be preached everywhere. Disciples are to be made. You're looking for believers. You're preaching the gospel. God makes them believers, and then you make disciples out of those believers. Well, this gospel is to be preached everywhere. Mark 16 said, go into all the world. Can we say everywhere? everywhere. Preach the gospel to every creature. Can we say everyone? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be damned. This mission was to start in Jerusalem. So we're going global, for folks, but we start in Jerusalem. This is not just a disorganized chaos. There's protocol here, starting in Jerusalem. During his 40 days of proving himself to be alive in Luke 24, before he ascends, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says in verse 46 of Luke 24, thus it is written, we were talking about the scriptures, that the Christ or the Messiah should suffer 
and on the third day rise from the dead. There's an artist's rendition of an empty tomb. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit then was sent to empower believers for being his witnesses starting in Jerusalem. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem till you're endued with power from on high. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So this story in our text today took place in Jerusalem. So it's starting here, and by the middle of the book, it's starting to spread everywhere in, in the Roman Empire, starting at the home base. God raised up Jesus to bless us, right? But to bless the Jews first. Can we say first? We read it in our text. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So God did this for them first. Now why would they be chosen to be first? Well, somebody has to be first, right? I don't know what it's like to be chosen to be first when it comes to a sporting event. I know what it's like to be picked last, you know, neighborhood ball game. Do they do that anymore? Does everything have to be done for our children? They can't just randomly have a game. Anyway, I'm getting off course here, but... They're down to two people, you know. Okay, we'll take Lada, you get the girl. They were chosen first because God had a covenant with their father, Abraham. He said, I've got your back, dude, and your descendants are going to be blessed. I promised you. If you and I were to make a covenant and have a close relationship and you were to die, I would make sure your kids didn't starve. I would make sure they did well. I would make sure they go to school. They drop out, they would hear from me on it. Same kind of relationship except it's God who's eternal, who made a covenant with himself, with Abraham. So he starts at that relationship. Those people are scattered all over the world, so if you go to them first, then you establish a beachhead for everybody else. Isn't that awesome? This good news was taken then to the Gentiles next. Here's an example. In Acts 13, 46, Paul told the Jews it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Preach the gospel. Those that became believers became believers. Those that didn't sometimes would persecute him. He'd say, okay, I've done the first thing. It was necessary that I bring the word of God to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, you know, it's between you and God now. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This was a pattern in the ministry of Paul. In verse, in verse 5 of this same chapter, it says that they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews in Salamis. Here, he was in um, Antioch and Pisidia where this happened. And he, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. In chapter 14, verse 1, in Iconium, they entered together in the synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So they would share the love of God in a loving way and people that believed would create a congregation when they got booted out of the synagogue. 
Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And for three Shabbats, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. In verse 10 of Acts 17, they go to Berea. And when they arrive there, the first thing they do is they go to the Jewish synagogue. In verse 17 of Acts 17, they go to the synagogue in Athens and reason with the Jews and devout persons there. And then from there, they go to Mars Hill for that famous uh, sermon that Paul gives there. In Acts 18, Paul leaves Athens, goes to Corinth, and he reasons there in the synagogue every single Sabbath. And in 1819, they go to Ephesus, and he goes into the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. Why is he doing this? This is protocol. They get to be first. He reflects this in what he wrote in Romans chapter 1. He he opens this glorious book to the Roman believers, the heart of the Roman Empire. This book says, I am not ashamed of the gospel or the good news of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Well, I'm not a Greek. Well, you're a non-Jew, meaning they spoke Greek throughout the empire then, so if you weren't Jewish, you could be considered Greek because you spoke Greek. But in reality, he was speaking of Gentiles. So the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes it. First of all, for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. Stay with me, we're going somewhere. As Gentile believers, we must all return to this gospel protocol and love Jewish people. If they, if they were a priority then, they should be a priority now. If we're to love everybody, we certainly must love them. Well, I don't know any Jewish people. Well, you very well may know Jewish people with the internet the way it is. And if you're on Facebook and have very many friends, you may uh, know some Jewish people. Don't get so caught up in politics and political de- debate that you alienate people to the point you can't share the love of Christ with them. Hello, let's not forget eternal things for the sake of a temporary thing. Romans 11 is a masterpiece written for Gentiles who don't understand why God would continue to show love to an ethnicity that rejects him. Now, they all didn't reject him. I mean, there's 5,000 Jews right here in the beginning of the church, and in our day, there's more Jewish believers than have ever been in the history of the church, I've been told. Romans 11 begins with these words, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Hey, he's not throwing the Jews away. I'm still here. That's what Paul is saying. So preaching the gospel to all is still priority number one. We're not going into martial law, suspending the commands of Christ because we're in the last days. Let's all get tribulation food and find a hole in the ground or some cave somewhere and sit it out for the rest of our lives. We're here to be a light. We're the light of the world. We're here to show the love of God everywhere we go. You cannot show people the love of God without loving them, right? God loves you, but I don't. That doesn't work. God loves you, and I'm going to show you how much. 
you curse me, I'm going to bless you in such a way that it doesn't appear I'm being sanctimonious or self-righteous. This is the protocol of the gospel. This is the sermon, although I'm not done. You may say, why did I come to this church today? Let's all say it together. One, two, three. What is the big deal? This, this protocol is important because the church as a whole, not all of them, but the church as a whole got away from it. And some nonsense happened that we still have with us today. The protocol would have helped keep the church free of syncretism. Now, what is syncretism? Syncretism is mixing Christianity or mixing followers of Jesus, their worship, in with other worship. Oh, you have many gods? Well, we have the apostles. You can talk to them now, even though they're gone to heaven. Oh, you have statues? We do too. You can worship them. Use them. Syncretism. This would not have been allowed to become part of the church had the mandate of carrying the gospel to the Jew first remained a priority. Somebody would have spoke up. Some bishop would have said, wait a minute. This is going to repel the Jews putting these statues in this place. Wait a minute. Including dead folks in our worship services is going to repel the Jewish people. The Israelites, they're not even going to listen to the gospel because we are mixing paganism in to the life of the church. This isn't the way it started. This isn't the way it was in the book of Acts. We're getting away from our protocol. The gospel is to the Jew first. We cannot get away from that. It would have kept the church pure, and we wouldn't have all these denominations that we have today. And I'm not shooting rocks at denominations. Most of us believe the same thing, just how we carry it out is differently. It would have protected us because we wouldn't get far from our foundation. The Old Testament scriptures forbid that kind of thing. Oh, I know those arguments and all kinds of other things where people defend the syncretism, but I'm telling you right now, it is nonsense. It is not of God, and it keeps people in blindness, distracting Jesus. There is one God, can I get an amen? And one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. No other mediators, none. He doesn't need our help. We serve his purposes by helping people make connections with the mediator by preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Nobody else was given. He gave them, and we give our lives to spreading that message everywhere. The other reason this is important, there's just two reasons, is this would have helped prevent the belief in replacement theology. Replacement theology, if you believe in that, I don't want to be offensive because if I am, then I won't persuade you. But I want to persuade you. I believe it is a false teaching that basically says because a majority of Jewish people rejected Jesus, you know, they all didn't embrace him as their Messiah at that time. A remnant did, but they all didn't. God in turn, out of spite, I guess, rejected them and gave all their covenant promises to the church and has replaced Israel. 
Now, I don't want to go too far in balancing things here. The truth is we are children of Abraham by faith. Amen? We believe in the miraculous conception of Abraham's seed, just as he did, a different kind of conception, no? And we believe in the resurrection of Abraham's son. Abraham believed that if he did offer up Isaac, God was able to raise him up. We believe God raised up Jesus. And we believe that God was able to provide for himself a sacrifice. We believe Jesus is our ram in the thicket, as we shared earlier. This is the foundation of our faith. We are children of Abraham by faith, but this does not do away with the biological descendants of Abraham with whom God made a covenant. Justin Martyr was one of the first well-known guys began to preach replacement theology. He said, we as Christians, not the Jews, shall inherit the Holy Land. Oh, really? Here we are, you know, centuries later. Augustine said, he may be your hero, but I'm sorry, he said this, the Jews have been cast off by God. The Bible doesn't say that. This bad theology dominated Christianity from the end of the 2nd century into the 20th century. And bad theology, Lonnie Solomon says, always results in bad behavior. What you believe determines how you believe. This resulted in massive anti-Semitism justified by the church. Jews began to be called Christ killers. When you read Peter's sermons in Acts 2, when he tells them, you've taken the Son of God by wicked hands and and crucified him, he said, according to the knowledge and purpose of God, you did this. And here we just read, uh, you know, you've set a murderer free and killed the prince of life, but this had to be done to fulfill prophecy. See, God has a hand in this. Well, if I could get in a time machine, I would keep Jesus from being crucified. Oh, really? What would that do to us? Let's think about that kind of dumb. In AD 325, the Council of Nicaea, you may think that was a wonderful event, branded Jews as an odious people. In AD 535, the Synod of Claremont forbid Jews from holding public office in Europe. Yes, the, the church at that time was dominating politics in Europe. John Chrysostom in 1099 AD said this, It is because you killed Christ that there is now no restoration, no mercy, and no defense for you. Uh, You did? I don't think they did. Forefathers did. In AD 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council declared that all Jews should wear yellow badges. That was in 1215. What does that remind you of? In AD 1267, the Synod of Breslau required all Jews to live in ghettos, separated from society. In AD 1290, the Crusades happened. We all think the Crusades were about going to the Holy Land and taking, you know, the holy sites away from the Muslims. But you know what they did? They killed Jews all the way to the Holy Land and all the way back, tens of thousands, in the name of Christianity. I don't think so. That's what they did. In AD 1394, England expelled Jews from their borders. 
This happened in 1478 with the Inquisition from Spain. In 1492, Jews were expelled from France. Some people believe that Columbus was actually Jewish and he was looking for a place for Jews to go and searching for other routes. Maybe he was thinking they could go to India. Let's find a shortcut. Got to be a shorter way than going around Africa. Martin Luther, hero of the Reformation, became a moron in his later days. Listen to what he said. Jewish synagogues should be set on fire and spread over with dirt. Jewish homes should be broken down and destroyed. Passport and travel privileges should be forbidden to all Jews. Let them stay at home. And if we're afraid they may harm us, then let us do what other countries have done and drive them out of our country for all time. In his book, The Destruction of European Jews, Raoul Hilberg wrote, Indeed, almost every anti-Semitic law in Nazi legislation came from laws previously passed by church councils and synods throughout the centuries. Bad theology produces bad behavior. Now, people repented for this. Yes, they have. I'm not, you know, continuing to make people feel guilty. But I tell you what, the doctrine needs to die. The protocol needs to be returned to. Amen. Amen. We read this earlier. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. I also am an Israelite, Paul said. Romans 11. Verse 11. By their transgression, that is their rejection of the Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Paul would say, oh, you don't want Jesus? Okay, now I'm turning to the Gentiles. What does that do for Gentiles? Blesses the Gentiles, doesn't it? Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? There's coming a time of restoration of all things. Between now and then, the protocol still stays the same. You preach the gospel everywhere, and if you meet Jews, put them first. Verse 15, if their rejection of Jesus is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If we're blessed by them turning away from God, how much more blessed will we be when they turn back to God? Because we are grafted into this vine. From the standpoint of the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's election, they are beloved on account of the patriarchs. Because of God's covenant with their father Abraham, they are blessed. For God's gifts to them and his call on them are irrevocable. God's not a liar. Hello? Not a liar like some of us. I, uh, we had a, a family attending church here and a single mother, and she died. And her friend here in Granbury had promised her, in view of your death, if that happens, I will raise your daughter. Your daughters. Well, one of the daughters has already grown, and suddenly this woman died. So this woman, being true to her word, took in this rebellious daughter. A glorious thing. This kid was so blessed. But the kid was so rebellious, they had to run her off. And her life is in chaos. But God's not like that. He'll discipline us, but he will never wash his hands of his promises. 
explain this that comes to the Jewish people. No other people have ever survived 1,900 years without a homeland and remained a people group. No people have ever regained their homeland after 1,900 years of not being a nation. They're a nation. No language has ever died out as being something that was spoken by living people and then been reborn as a spoken language, except Hebrew. It's a national language of Israel. At the same time, when Israel was born, five Arab nations with their total population of 28.5 million invaded Israel at the time their population was 650,000 and Israel beat the socks off of them. They didn't have an air force. They had one plane, a Cessna, not a military plane, and a big gun that made noises but shot nothing and a strategy and a faith in God to help them. And they ran them off. Well, 19 years later, their enemies had really armed themselves. We just didn't have enough weapons, and they attacked again. And here's the stats on that. I was just a boy when this happened. I remember reading it in Time magazine and just amazed. In only six days of June in 1967, with an army of 75,000 fighters, nearly 1,000 tanks, and 175 jets, Israel defeated its united foes that had 900 planes, 5,000 tanks, and 500,000 men. Years ago, Yvette and I met a tour guide named Z, whose job during the 67 war recovering these 5,000 tanks. He said the instructions were in Russian. You'd have to get in them and figure out how to drive them and bring them on home. Prophecies continually are fulfilled by this tiny nation. Prophecies like Jeremiah 30, verse 3, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. It's happening in our day. Jeremiah 49 says, Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossess them says the Lord, verse 2. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Ezekiel 36 I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. And you talk about a country that is blessed agriculturally, Israel. Grapes as big as a child's fist. Mark Twain visited that part of the world in the 19th century, and he basically said in his book about that trip that it was useless land, just a swamp full of mosquitoes. But when God's people did it, 
Verse 33 of Ezekiel 36 says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I will cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be filled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, The land which was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations, then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined place and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. And that's just a few of the prophecies about the land of Israel, of what God is doing and will, would do for them. If their restoration is a blessing, we are blessed. Isaiah 49 says this, this includes us. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. There is coming an irrefutable proof to the existence of God, to the atheists in the world. And it's found in the land of Israel. Is that not awesome? If we had time, we could go into just how much armaments are being built up around him. It is scary. See what God's going to do next. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the protocol that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to love everybody share the good news of believing in Jesus to everyone who will listen. And to not be pressured to manipulate people to get notches on our evangelism gun, but to sow seeds that you can water and you can bring forth the saving of souls. Help us, Lord, to love Jewish people. Help us, Lord, to love all people. Help us, Lord, to love black people and white people and Asian people, Native Americans. Help us, Lord, to... uh, humble ourselves to those whom our people maybe did harm to their people in years past. Help us, Lord, to learn from history that the gospel is to go forth into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem. Help us, Lord, to take the gospel back to Jerusalem all along the way. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. If you'd like to hear more about what the Lord is doing in Israel, come and join us here at 3 o'clock this afternoon. If you're hungry, stay and eat. God bless you. Let's stand. The Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh Himself lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace, His wholeness, His shalom. One that does not come from compromise, but one that comes from walking in victory as you surrender to his lordship. May you share the love of God in acts and words everywhere you go as we continue the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Go get them, tigers. God bless you.